This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. On today's episode, we'll talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, automotive pricing. We'll talk about how automakers think about how to price a new car, when they start thinking about pricing, the factors that automakers consider when they're pricing a new car, how automakers evaluate the success of their pricing strategy, and how automakers can adjust their strategy once the price has been set. We'll also follow up our last fun, summer-themed Craigslist challenge by taking a run at a different Craigslist challenge that's equally fun and summer-themed, but a little more practical and road-trip-friendly. So to kick things off, we'll go over a few automotive-related pricing terms just to get us all on the same page. So in automotive pricing, there are a few different numbers that are really important to think about. And the first number is the manufacturer's suggested retail price, or the MSRP. So this is the number that the automaker has the most control over, but it's a suggested retail price because ultimately cars are sold through dealerships, and the dealership is the one who sets the final retail and selling price of a car. And the next number that's really important to consider is the selling price. And this is the price that car shoppers agree upon with the dealership before adding in taxes and fees. So automakers cannot directly influence this price, but they can heavily indirectly influence it through the MSRP they set and through the use of discounts and rebates that they can use to get the price close to where they want to be. Finally, the last price that's important to keep in mind is the invoice price. And this is the price that the manufacturer bills the dealership for the car. So the manufacturer can influence the invoice price and the MSRP, but they cannot directly set the final selling price with the customer. They can only influence it through incentives, rebates, and adjusting the invoice price and the MSRP. So when automakers set prices, they'll think about the estimated final selling price that they're interested in achieving and the estimated MSRP that they want to advertise keeping in mind that these two numbers are usually different numbers. And this is where the pricing conversation starts for the automobile manufacturer. All right, so when do automakers start thinking about where to set the price of a new car? So let's assume that an automaker is starting to think about launching a new car, and they're going to engineer a new platform, and they're bringing in people to tell them what kind of car they should design and who they should market to. So usually automakers already start thinking about pricing, during the engineering and planning process. So they may not have final MSRP numbers set at this stage, but they have a rough idea of the price range they'd like this new car to participate in. So the product planning, engineering, marketing, and finance teams will get together and set some goals and parameters at the very beginning of a new vehicle project. And this way, the engineers know the context of where the car is expected to stand in the marketplace and they know what their budget and cost targets are. But at this stage, the details aren't final. We only have broad, big-picture goals. Like, for example, we expect this car to be at the higher end of this particular market segment, or we want this car to be about twenty-five dollars to $30,000, for example. And the vehicle program will continue at this point, while the product planning, marketing, and finance teams inside an automaker get to work on conducting market research and analyses to determine what expected volumes and profitability the automaker will have at the various price points that they're considering. 
So I've described several groups of people inside the automaker, and you're probably familiar with who an engineer is, who the finance people are, and who the marketing people are, but product planning is a specific group that's specific to automakers and maybe some other industries, but in this context, the product planner is usually the person responsible for putting together the entire business case for a new car and for a new product line, and so they will be responsible for coordinating the work of everybody else and putting together everything in one nice, neat package for the board of directors or senior management to look at and evaluate whether or not this car is a good idea. Product planners also typically monitor a car through its life cycle. So after the car is launched, they'll closely watch how it's doing in the marketplace and whether it's performing the expectations or not. So the product planner will also be the one who is responsible for suggesting to management that maybe they need a new set of options, or maybe they need to reduce the price, or maybe they need to reshuffle a few items that are available on the car. So the product planner is in some ways responsible for the entire life cycle of the car and its performance in the marketplace. So as the car moves through the engineering process, product planning, marketing, and finance are working very closely to evaluate the potential volume and profitability implications at the different price points the automaker is considering pricing the new car. So at this stage, they probably have a rough idea of the range they want to be in, but now what they're trying to figure out is what is the optimal point in that range to be, and how should they spread out the various configurations you can buy a new car in to cover the entire range. So as they're doing this evaluation, they're thinking about a couple different factors. There's product competitiveness, market share versus profitability goals, brand strategy, and the customer profile slash purchase mix. And we'll talk about each one of these in turn. So the first one we'll talk about is product competitiveness. And what does this mean? So during the new vehicle development process, engineering, product planning, marketing, and finance are going to be in constant communication throughout the process. So it's product planning's role to constantly monitor the new car's competitors and what features and price points these competitors have, in addition to how they perform. Then in coordination with engineering, the product planners will have some idea of how the new car will compare with its competitors. Will it be a quantum leap over all of its peers? Will it be an incremental improvement over the previous car? Or are they mainly focused on catching up to competitors? So these qualitative factors are really important because these are the same things that consumers are going to think about when they're car shopping and deciding between the new car that the company is designing and all of its competitors. So oftentimes product planning will get in the shoes of the consumers themselves and try and weigh what consumers would be willing to pay for the new car compared to its peers. So this may take the form of various market analyses, conducting market research, and often running focus groups to gauge real customers' opinions and thoughts about the new product, where they'll get all these customers into a lab or a warehouse and they'll show them the new car and ask them what they think about the car. And so product planners will gather all this data together and they'll get a perspective on how competitive the car is expected to be, what consumers are willing to pay, and they'll have some idea of what an optimal final pricing structure will look like. Or maybe they'll have three or five different options here based on how the competitive landscape looks, what the focus groups were telling them, and what engineering is telling them about what the car can do. And so at this stage, product planning has a detailed understanding of the marketplace and how much volume and profitability the automaker can expect at different price points. So they may have kind of three or four scenarios that they're thinking about for the final pricing structure for the car. 
And at this point, this is where the automaker needs to think about its market share versus profitability goals. Because at each of these price points, they'll have different outcomes in terms of market share and profitability. And this is where senior management typically gets involved, and they'll debate the merits and demerits of each of these scenarios. And usually this is done probably about 12 month, twelve to 18 months before product launch. So the group between the senior executives, marketing, finance, and product planning, they'll also evaluate how the new car is expected to contribute to the broader brand's market share or profitability goals. So this is where the bigger picture starts to come into account. Because generally automakers can trade off acquiring market share for lower per unit profitability and a lower price, but they can get higher per unit profitability if they chase a higher price, assuming the cost of the car is going to be the cost of the car. And there are benefits to going each direction, and it's a bit of a judgment call in the end based on what the automaker is trying to do with this new car. So after consulting with senior management, they may narrow the field from maybe three or four alternatives down to two, and product planning and finance will conduct much more detailed and rigorous analysis of the financial implications at these front-runner pricing scenarios, for example. So for example, the product planning and finance team might do a very detailed financial analysis of a pricing strategy that undercuts all major competitors compared with the pricing strategy that puts the new car right in the middle or at the higher end of the price points amongst all its competitors. So they'll try to think about, well, what are competitors going to respond with? How will consumers respond? Uh, how many sales can they expect? And what does that mean for the bottom line of the company? And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. This week, our show is sponsored by Waiting Room Coffee. Waiting Room Coffee, that free drink that always seems so enticing when you're waiting for your car to be serviced, but doesn't taste as good as it sounds. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. So while product planning, marketing, and finance are doing this very detailed financial analysis of a couple different pricing scenarios, they also have to think about how the new car that's yet to be launched and priced fits into the overall brand strategy. And this is important because unless the new car is a total failure, it's probably going to be on the market for at least three to five years after introduction, so it needs to be representative of where the brand wants to go over the next three to five years. Some cars that automakers launch are meant to be cars that take market share from competitors and expand the brand's presence in a particular market. So automakers are going to price these cars aggressively and hope to take share from their peers. However, some other cars are more specialty and niche cars that maybe are just meant to retain already brand loyal customers or to represent a halo product for the brand that brings a lot of attention, but maybe doesn't directly sell a lot of cars itself. So depending on what the purpose of the car is for the overall brand strategy, that also might inform what sort of pricing strategy the automaker is going to take. In addition, sometimes automakers will launch products that are just meant to plug a gap in their lineup that they're hearing from their customers and from their dealers. Let's, let's say an automaker sells a small SUV and a large SUV, and they get a lot of customers coming in saying, well, you know, we'd love to buy a car from your brand, but we want something that's medium-sized. And so if an automaker is launching a car that's just trying to plug a gap 
maybe it's not designed to take a lot of market share from competitors. It's just designed to keep people from leaving the showroom when they've maybe outgrown the smaller car and they're not ready for the bigger car. And somewhat related to brand strategy, the product planning and finance teams will also think about where within the particular market segment the car wants to be positioned. So let's say, for example, an automaker is launching a new small car, like a compact sedan similar to a Toyota Corolla. So within compact sedans, they may want to have their new product be at the low end of the market or the high end of the market, depending on what their goals are for the car. And sometimes automakers will have two cars in the same segment, which is a strategy that's known as doubling up. By having one car at the affordable end of the segment and one at the more expensive end of the segment. So how you price each car is going to be dependent on you knowing that the other car is there. And this has become very popular recently in the SUV and crossover segments just because crossovers and SUVs are so incredibly popular. For example, Nissan sells both the Rogue Sport and the Kicks as subcompact SUVs, but the Kicks is kind of at the low end or the affordable end of the subcompact SUV segment, and the Rogue Sport is, is a little bigger and at the premium end of the subcompact SUV segment, almost as big as its bigger brother, the Rogue. So by having two, though, they can kind of catch you whether you are looking for an affordable subcompact SUV or you want a really premium feeling subcompact SUV there. And this positioning matters. So for example, the Kicks is priced really affordably and really aggressively, but the Kicks actually doesn't even have some super high-end features because by the time you would add all those super high-end features to the car, you're well within the price point of the Rogue Sport or even the bigger Rogue. Whereas the Rogue Sport, which is a bigger subcompact SUV, is kind of trying to bridge the gap between the very small Kicks and the relatively large Rogue. So it's priced right in the middle, where the less expensive versions of the Rogue Sport might overlap with the more expensive version of the Nissan Kicks, and the expensive versions of the Rogue Sport overlap with the Nissan Rogue. So in essence, the Rogue Sport is, in addition to being the big expensive bookend amongst subcompact SUVs, it's also the super affordable small bookend on the compact SUV segment. So Nissan only needs to sell three different SUVs, but kind of play in two different segments with one car that is right in the middle, in between the two. So they can kind of catch you both coming and going. And that strategy across the lineup is going to influence how Nissan prices the Kicks, the Rogue Sport, and the Rogue simultaneously because they want to make sure that all three cars cover all the major price points and traffic points in the SUV segment. But the beauty of this, of splitting the role of covering the segment into three cars, is that no one car is tasked with covering the entire spectrum. So by having three separate cars, the pricing strategy or the pricing ladder for each car can be much more focused on the specific group of customers they're trying to target in this broad category of people who want smallish SUVs. And now with portfolio and brand level considerations taken into account, the product planners, marketing, and finance together are, start, are starting to sharpen their ideas on where the price points for the new car should be. So in addition to just setting the range of prices for the car, they also have to decide 
various configurations they plan to sell the car in, or trim levels. So should they do three trim levels, two trim levels, or four, uh, is also a function of their analysis because different people are going to want different combinations of stuff on their car. And how you structure the trims and how you structure the price jump from one level of equipment to another level of equipment is also very strategic and involves benchmarking against your competitors and what they're doing, what consumers want, uh, how much money you want to make out of the car. And ideally, you want to structure your prices in a way that encourage customers to buy the configuration that's most profitable to you. And that configuration is not always the most expensive one. Because if you're an automaker and you can figure out exactly what people want and don't want, if you can figure out that by adding just one or two features, consumers will pay an extra $2,000, for example, then that particular configuration might be the most profitable configuration than a more expensive car where you have to add thousands of dollars of features just to collect that amount back in pricing from the customer. So sometimes the most profitable configuration of a car for an automaker is not the most expensive one. And you want to structure your pricing tiers as an automaker to encourage customers to buy the most profitable configuration within your lineup, within reason. And you can measure profitability whether on a per unit basis, if that's what you're worried about, or on a total contribution margin basis. If you just want to make the most total amount of dollars, it might be worth it to offer this very value-packed configuration at the low end or somewhere in the middle of the price range for the car and just drive a lot of volume into those particular configurations. So that's also a consideration as well for automakers. The important thing to keep in mind is up to this point, we've mainly been talking about MSRP. And MSRP is the first thing that the product planners and the pricing people and the finance people are going to set because once they've set the MSRP or have a rough idea of where it'll be, then they'll start to think about what kind of discounts that they plan to offer. And yes, the automakers go ahead and plan the discounts ahead of time before they launch the car. So they kind of have some idea on how much they're going to spend to incentivize people to buy the car. And so with this strategy, there's kind of two ways broadly you can do it. So some automakers like General Motors like to set their MSRPs really, really high and then offer a lot of incentives and rebates to consumers to make it look like you're getting a really big discount. And they've seen that being able to have that room to offer a lot of discounts gives General Motors flexibility to change the price on a whim. So like if, let's say, they are running short of a particular trim level or a particular car, they can just reduce the discounts for that particular model. And that's easier for GM to do than adjusting the MSRP, for example. On the flip side, you have automakers like Subaru who don't spend a lot of money on incentives at all, but their MSRPs are priced very, very competitively. And so their strategy is, we're going to go ahead and give you all the discount up front in the price that we tell you, but because we've tried to give it to you all up front, we're not going to do that much incremental discounting after that. And so when you go to get a price quote for a new Subaru, it might look like you're not getting a very big discount. But a lot of that has already been factored in to this lower than usual MSRP for the car, for example. And there's no right or wrong way on strategy here. I mean, this is a bit of a judgment call that the executives need to make. But just know that when you're looking at a car, the MSRP is just the starting point. So the MSRP is just kind of 
a way to anchor your expectations on what's going to happen, and then some automakers will discount a lot underneath that MSRP and others won't. And so one last consideration product planners take into account, and this ties to the earlier conversation on incentives, is how they expect buyers to pay for the car, because it's going to influence how they set up pricing. So if customers are most likely to lease the car, then the actual retail price of the car is not going to matter as much as the estimated monthly lease payment, which is more of a function of a wide variety of factors beyond the MSRP. And automakers can use other tools to bring down the monthly lease payment without changing the MSRP. So one good example of this is BMW. So BMW, they sell a lot of their cars through 36-month leases. And basically what happens is the MSRP for a BMW might be extremely high, but the lease payment relative to the MSRP might be very low because BMW uses tools like the money factor in your lease, the estimated value at the end of your lease, and secret lease rebates to bring down the cost of a lease to a very competitive number, even though the window sticker price of the car has jumped dramatically over last year or is much higher than its competitors. So if shoppers are likely to lease, then the MSRP becomes less important to the consumer than their monthly lease payment number. And so automakers may choose to set a much higher MSRP and then use other tools to bring down the price of the lease for those customers. And the reason why an automaker might want to do that is, one, they might want to encourage you to lease if you're indifferent between different methods of paying for the car. And two, they want to give themselves the flexibility. So if they set the MSRP high, like BMW does, then they have the flexibility of either discounting it later through offering a very affordable lease or um, discounting it later by actually taking a discount off the MSRP. But if they set the price too low up front, then they kind of remove this ability to take that discount later. However, setting a really high MSRP doesn't come without a cost. If you set a really high MSRP right out of the gate, you might lose shoppers who just look at the MSRP and say, this car is incredibly expensive. I'm going to go buy a competitor from Lexus or Infiniti, for example, or somebody with a lower MSRP who is delivering stronger value for money. So it's a bit of a trade-off again. Um, and if shoppers are likely to pay cash or finance, then this upfront retail price becomes a little more important because if I have $30,000 cash to spend on a car, I'm going to search for cars around $30,000. So I'm not going to know that, oh, I could go and look at a $45,000 BMW because my monthly payment is going to be about the same as leasing um, a $30,000 car um, if I'm leasing because BMW is going to do all these other things to bring down the price of the lease. But if I'm just buying the car... BMW doesn't have those levers to discount the price of the car, aside from straight giving me a big discount up front. So if an automaker sees that most of its shoppers are going to finance or pay cash, then they may set a more conservative or lower retail price. And if automakers expect most shoppers to be financing, though, what they might do is set a retail price at a point where they can set the retail price and then leave themselves room to offer discounted financing, like 0% APR or 0.9% APR that's really attractive to finance customers. And we'll do a whole separate episode at some point on incentives and how those are structured and how we decide what to do with those. But the takeaway here is when automakers are setting the MSRP, 
They'll go ahead and take into account what kind of discounts and rebates that they want to offer later when the car is actually sold. Back to our earlier point about they set the MSRP and the estimated price point they want to sell the car, and the difference is going to be the amount of incentives they plan to offer. And so here in this scenario, what's happening is the automaker basically is trying to figure out the optimal retail price to set and the optimal amount of discounts to advertise to try to get to their target actual final transaction price that you, the customer, will negotiate with the dealer. And so after taking all of this into account and all the things that we've talked about, the product planning, marketing, and finance teams will agree on a price range, uh, a specific combination of trim levels and packages to offer, the price jump from each of those trim levels to the next one, uh, the estimated amount that they'll spend on discounts and rebates over the life of the car, and um, the various configurations of colors and options and whatnot that'll be offered. So once all of this is locked and the window stickers are printed and the cars are on their way to the dealers, the automaker will evaluate their pricing strategy by constantly communicating with their dealers and monitoring the sales numbers and how the car is doing. So they'll talk to their dealers about how consumers are reacting to the price of the car, and they'll monitor the press and how the press is talking about the price point of the car, and they'll monitor sales and where these cars are transacting at and if the cars are selling at the pace that the automaker anticipated. So if cars are selling too fast, Customers might get discouraged or not really get a chance to try the new car before buying it, and they may go elsewhere. So if you are underpricing your car, then you're leaving customers on the table because customers are going to want to try your car, and if, they're, and if they're selling so fast they don't even get a chance to try it or look at it, then they may just go elsewhere and be really discouraged, right? And that's a customer that you probably could have gotten if you had priced it correctly, Um and if a car is priced too high, then consumers are also going to get discouraged because they're going to say, this car is really expensive, there's not a lot of value for money, and the automaker might have to tweak their strategy. So when they're looking at the first couple months of sales, automakers can adjust their strategy by offering more discounts and rebates if they need to lower the price of the car. They can raise prices mid-year or at the next model year if they price the car too low. And they can also react to this by changing the types of equipment that's being offered. So automakers can oftentimes lower the price of a particular option, or they can offer free options or make something standard the next year to improve the value proposition. In addition, if there's a supply shortage of a particular car, automakers can, can do like a, a hidden price increase by only sending dealers the more expensive configurations or the most profitable configurations, depending on what that might be, of the car. Um, and basically prioritizing the um, configurations that will make the automaker the most money. And so one thing in all of this is when the automaker goes in and sets that final pricing structure, that final MSRP structure, the amount of rebates and discounts they plan on offering, they also go in and set invoice price of the car, which is what will be offered to the, to the dealer and what the dealer pays to buy the car. And the invoice price hasn't been discussed much lately because it's usually anchored to the MSRP. So there's usually some formula that automakers use 
to calculate the spread between MSRP and invoice. Um, and so let's say for a particular automaker, they may decide that the difference between MSRP and invoice might be 6% of the car's MSRP. And that's usually pretty fixed across trims, but sometimes what an automaker can do if they want to encourage a certain configuration is they can change the spreads between invoice and MSRP and basically give the dealer more or less room to discount the car with the dealer's own money. And in this case, this gives them this gives the automaker some ability to um, more tightly control the prices on a particular uh, configuration. If let's say your MSRP is equal to the invoice price, like it is on a lot of cars that are coming out now, like the uh, Ford Mustang Mach-E, I believe, and the GMC Hummer that's coming this fall, MSRP is the invoice price. So basically the dealer has no ability to discount the car themselves below MSRP without losing money on the deal, which the dealer probably is not in the business of doing. So in this case, MSRP ends up being the final transaction price for something like the GMC Hummer or... Um, the Mustang Mach-E for now. I think there might be a little bit of a spread between invoice and MSRP on the Mach-E, but by tightening it, by tightening it up, the automaker is trying to take back control uh, over the price of the car, the final selling price of the car from the dealer. And yeah, and that's broadly how automakers think about how they price a new car. So you probably didn't think too much about it, and uh, the numbers on the window stickers are... Um, the product of a lot of thought and analysis by the automakers over where to set it, at least at the beginning of a car's life cycle. And then as the years go by, they may just do like a $100 increase or $300 increase each year until you get to the next big redesign. Um, but automakers spend a lot of time thinking about the MSRP and the right price and the right mix of discounts and MSRP to put on a car. And so hopefully this was... Uh, informative to you. Uh, if you have questions about this, write in a listener question uh, and we'll make sure to discuss it on the show. It's time for the Craigslist Challenge. All right, this week on the Craigslist Challenge, in the spirit of last episodes Craigslist challenge we're going to look for a summer themed car but we're going to approach summer very differently this time and we're going to look for a road trip friendly family car for the summer and so we're going to look in Austin Texas which is where I live and let's say we're going to spend $25,000 on a used minivan so we're going to go out and look for a minivan which is the perfect road trip car you have plenty of room for everybody lots of space for everyone's luggage they get great gas mileage relative to other things that can carry seven people and luggage. And yes, they do have a reputation as being kind of a soccer mom mobile, but I think the reputation is unwarranted. I think minivans are just very practical cars and modern minivans are actually quite large. So I don't think we should really be calling them minivans anymore. But that said, they're still a very functional shape and they're the perfect car for a long summer road trip. Um, even as the country is opening back up and people are getting back on planes, there's nothing like a good long road trip with the family to, um, to really kick off the summer. So yeah, $25,000 in Austin, Texas for a minivan. Let's see what we find. All right. I think I found the car. It's a 2015 Honda Odyssey Touring. 
Um, the mileage is a little high. It has 78,000 miles, and it's listed for just under $22,000. So once you pay for taxes and fees, it should be right around that $25,000 threshold. But here's what I like about it. Uh, I took a look at the Carfax, which is provided by the car. It's being sold by a BMW dealership here in Austin. And it has a full documented service history from various Honda dealers throughout Texas. So this car is a Texas lifer, and it looks like it started out its life somewhere in the Dallas area and then eventually moved down to Austin about a year ago. And it's been regularly serviced. Um, the 2015 Odyssey was near... Uh, was pretty reliable historically it wasn't the first year that that design came out um, and the touring has a lot of nice additional touches that are going to be really handy for a long road trip so for example uh, it comes with lane departure warning and forward collision warning which for 2015 was a pretty big deal um, it comes with a cool box so you can keep some beverages cool and it has a navigation system for when you don't have cell phone coverage but still need directions and a DVD rear entertainment system for those long, monotonous highway drives and you want to keep everyone entertained. And so the odometer reading is maybe a little higher than I'd like for a car that I'm spending $22,000, $25,000 on. But these Odysseys are pretty solid. Like there's not really any major flaws with the engine or with the transmission. Um, this particular engine, you do need to replace the timing belt at about 105,000 miles. And... That is a four-figure job cost-wise if you were to do it at a Honda dealer. So I would maybe just budget to do that probably within a year or two of owning the car, depending on how frequently you're driving. Um, but the touring model is very nice because it has a lot of these extra perks that make it feel more luxurious than you might think for a minivan. Um, unfortunately, this is a touring and not a touring elite, so it doesn't have the vacuum cleaner um, that... The Honda Odyssey pioneered, but it does have a lot of other creature comforts. And for the money, it's a pretty good deal, uh, in my opinion. And you might argue that, okay, could I buy a newer minivan from like Chrysler or Dodge? Um, a really popular used minivan to buy is a Dodge Grand Caravan, just because they're so affordable and you can find them as ex-rental cars all the time. And the logic goes, you know, I don't mind driving an ex-rental because... If I have kids or anything, they're just going to beat up this car anyway. So I don't want to like spend a ton of money on a super nice minivan. Um, I would say that with used car prices being really inflated right now, you actually don't save that much money by buying the Dodge Grand Caravan. And um, even a 2018 or 2019 Grand Caravan is not going to have lane departure warning, forward collision warning, or the blind spot camera thingy that this Odyssey has. And so it's not going to be as comfortable on long road trips because... That lane departure warning especially is going to be nice. It'll kind of beep at you when you're drifting out of your lane. And so it might not even be as um, comfortable on a long trip than this kind of older, higher mileage, higher end Honda Odyssey. Um, but I certainly wouldn't fault anyone for choosing to get the Grand Caravan instead because there's something to be, to be said for buying something newer that's not as, um, hasn't been around as long and exposed to the elements as much. I mean, just physically that exact car. Um, and... The Grand Caravan does have second row seats that fold into the floor, which is really handy if you're carrying a lot of cargo. It does make the Grand Caravan second row seats less comfortable than the Odyssey second row seats, um, and so I probably would personally prefer this Odyssey, but um, 
I wouldn't fault you for choosing to go with the Grand Caravan either. So that said, I think this is a great summer road trip car, despite the higher odometer reading and the relatively high price for a six-year-old minivan. Um, but keep in mind, this was almost like a $50,000 car when it was new. New minivans are not cheap. Um, and this has a lot of nice creature comforts because the 2015 cars added a bunch of nice um, features that make the car feel a lot more modern than it really was, perhaps, at the time. So anyway, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, it's being sold by BMW of Austin, so just a, a local car dealership here in town. Um, and check it out if you're interested. All right, and that's going to wrap it up for us this week on the show. Uh, stay tuned for the end credits because, of course, um, it always and still does take a village to raise a podcast. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates.